This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, critics condemned the unruly US election TV leaders debate, which was derailed by Donald Trump's fact-free interjections and deflections, and some saw it as symptomatic of what's gone wrong with US politics and culture, something that the BBC's New York correspondent Nick Bryant has written a new book all about, and he tells me the media have been part of that problem. A lot of campaign reporters like me write the sort of narrative of the campaign that ideally we want to cover the narrative that provides us with maximum journalistic entertainment. But first, we talk to the new editor of the Dominion Post, who's left the Washington Post to take the job at a critical time for the title and its publisher. Real news matters to our society. It helps to get the facts out. It debunks fake news. It helps to put things into context. And it helps people make sense of the fast-changing world around them. Now, this is essential if we are to have sensible debates on the way forward, especially in these challenging times. And that is what good newsrooms do. That is how we make a difference to the communities that we serve. That was Warren Fernandez, the editor-in-chief of Singapore's main daily paper, The Straits Times, in a video for World News Day, an initiative that kicked off in Canada 30 years ago to remind the public and the media that journalism plays a critical role in helping people make sense of the world. In recent years, the global group, the World Editors Forum, has also used the day to focus on the fact that public trust in the media is falling, something that's been captured in surveys all over the world, including here. And with that in mind, Stuff, which is New Zealand's biggest publisher of news and biggest employer of journalists, marked World News Day 2020 last Monday by publishing a new editorial code of practice and ethics. And it was something that the new owner of Stuff, its chief executive Sinead Boucher, promised earlier this year after she bought the entire company from its unwilling Australian owners, Nine Entertainment, for just one dollar. Now, one of the editors who will have to work under this new code is Anna Fifield. Tomorrow, she takes up her new job as editor of the Capital's daily paper, The Dominion Post. And it's been a bit of a journey for the native of Hastings. She's just completed two weeks of quarantine after leaving Beijing, where she was the bureau chief for The Washington Post, and before that, its correspondent in Tokyo and in Seoul. And this week, I asked her what she has planned for the paper and why she swapped The Washington Post for The Dom Post in the first place. I loved my job at the Washington Post and I wasn't looking to leave. You know, I was covering the biggest story outside of the United States for this, you know, internationally respected newspaper owned by the world's richest man. So um, I was very happy in that job. But I think, you know, this year has prompted a lot of soul searching among many people and kind of a reckoning moment. And it made me think about what I was doing. Um, And, you know, I loved being a foreign correspondent, being out in the world, being the eyes and ears for our readers uh, in a place that many of them may never go to, may never have been to. Um, But I think with this year, I realized that what I was missing by being out in the world and far from my audience was a kind of sense of community and a proximity to my audience uh, and contributing to understanding of what's going on that really appealed to me. So, you know, even the idea of being accosted in New World over a headline that we've run or something, that appeals to me because I want to be, to have that kind of intimacy with the audience, I guess, and to to feel like I'm making a difference to people who matter to me. 
Well, careful what you wish for in terms of that um, face-to-face audience <laughs> feedback, I guess. But look, I, the, the COVID times have, have changed things a lot for the media here. One of the big changes was stuff uh, now not owned uh, by Nine Entertainment in Sydney. Now it's owned by the former chief executive, Sinead Boucher, who I guess would have appointed you to this new role at the Dom Post. Was that change of ownership important to your decision? Does, does it matter to you who owns the Dominion Post that you're going to edit? You know, Sinead Boucher's decision to uh, conduct this management buyout of stuff was absolutely inspirational and 100% the reason why I came home. I would never have taken that job, uh, this job, with uh, Nine still as the owner because it was just really clear that Nine did not care about New Zealand, did not care about investing in New Zealand and pumping money into good journalism. And, you know, I I wanted to be part of the success of stuff, of the rejuvenation of stuff under New Zealand ownership. So that was, yeah, really decisive in my decision to come back. But are you concerned, though, about, you know, the financial stability of the whole media, New Zealand media companies? You know, medium term, are you still concerned about, you know, just how viable um, major New Zealand news media companies are? Yeah, look, media companies around the world, you know, with the exception of the Washington Post and a few others, are, you know, facing a financial crunch. You know, our old business model has obviously got a lot of problems in it and nobody has found the silver bullet to solve all of these problems. But I feel very confident about stuff now, uh, the fact that it has been brought into New Zealand ownership uh, and, you know, the supporter scheme that has been launched has been, as I understand it, I haven't started yet, but has been very um, well supported with uh, better journalism and more innovation at stuff. People will support it and I, I feel confident. I wouldn't have made the leap if I didn't feel confident. Well, part of that uh, management buyout plan announced right at the start by uh, Sinead Boucher was uh, a new code of, of practices uh, and ethics. Do you think it's important? Yeah, I think it's hugely important. I mean, it's important internally at stuff, but also externally. Uh, you know, we we in the world are in kind of an information crisis right now, given the amount of misinformation and disinformation that spreads around the world, you know, unchecked on social media platforms, you know, bumped up by algorithms, not by humans. Restoring trust in journalism and in stuff's journalism in New Zealand is, is really, really really important. And so the way that uh, staff through this new editorial code of practice has said that, uh, you know, Mark Stevens wrote this week that staff will now be measuring public trust, not clicks. I think that people will click on quality journalism. It doesn't have to be clickbait. It doesn't have to be about celebrities. In the editorial code of practice and ethics, there's a lot of emphasis on transparency, which I think is really important, that we tell readers how we decide to write stories, why we don't write some stories, you know, the process behind it so that they can see the kind of yeah, how we come to to publish or not publish things. I think that's really important. Also, you know, correcting things. When we get things wrong, we have to correct them immediately and wholeheartedly to show that we are accountable to the audience. Um, and one thing that I'm really keen to do is to increase diversity in the newsroom and in the coverage because New Zealand is this beautiful multicultural place and our, our newsrooms should reflect that. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, I mean, a lot of it is, um, you know, pretty common to what you'd find in the media councils. 
the standards documents. I mean, that's, you know, that's the complaints and standards body that oversees non-broadcast media and newspapers. And of course, every media outlet already has an in-house editorial principles document, you know, where it covers the basics like balance, fairness and verification and so on. So, I mean, is this perhaps, this is actually more a document for the public perhaps than actually something that you as journalists and editors will be referring to day to day? Well, I think journalists and editors will be referring to that day to day. And yes, there is at every news organisation a code like this internally. But um, the fact that it's being shared with the public, I think, is a really powerful statement of staff's values and goals because we're asking to be held accountable. We are saying to the public, these are the details of our code of ethics and, you know, we want you to hold us accountable to this and we are promising you that we will live up to these standards. So um, it's not, I think, something to be diminished in a way, the fact that this is being made public because, yeah, it's a statement of intent. And a, you know, a, a compact with the public. There are a couple of potential fish hooks in it, though. Uh, just taking one passage in it, uh, this is relating to balance. Is uh, journalists must be wary that striving for balance does not compromise accuracy or fairness. We should not equate opinions with facts or knowingly publish false information in order to give the appearance of balance. Um, but does that not give you almost a sort of carte blanche to say? We're making an editorial choice here about we, what we believe to be are the most important facts, and actually we can exclude sides of the debate who might otherwise expect you know, right of reply or a presence in stories where the contrary opinions to ones they hold might be uh, the prominent ones. No, I don't read it in that way. I think that this is saying, uh, talking about issues like climate change denialism and saying, you know, we are not going to strive for balance in a climate change story by saying some people think, you know, humans are causing global warming and some people don't when the science clearly backs one side of that and not the other. So I think that this is something that would be applied relatively infrequently, but we're saying, you know, that this is not, it's not necessary to give conspiracy theorists uh, an equal footing with people who are basing uh, what they say on on verifiable facts. Yeah, stuff already had taken uh, a climate a specific um, editorial approach uh, that's restated in this document, saying you know we welcome robust debate, but we recognise the overwhelming scientific consensus that climate change is real and caused by human activity. So will not provide a venue for denialism or hoax advocacy. So that that I think restates what that position is. But elsewhere, uh, for example, under the heading of campaigns. Uh, it says uh, staff may occasionally choose to advocate for social or legislative change or raise funds for a cause when such campaigns support freedom of speech or human rights and are in the best interests of our audience or contribute to making Aotearoa a better place. Who's going to decide what's in the best interest of the audience or what's, uh, what's going to make Aotearoa a better place? For example, if we decided to uh, launch a campaign about, you know, eliminating single-use plastics or something, that would come with an editor's note, with an explanation of how we had arrived at this campaign, why we had chosen this. But also all of these stories would be clearly labelled and badged as saying this is part of a campaign and that we are, uh, you know, undertaking to make New Zealand a better place. So if it was to be a campaign or a stance that stuff was proposing to take, on a, a kind of national issue. Would you, as the editor of one of its major mastheads, want input into that? 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't think I would have to fight for input. I think that it's very collaborative and there really is a process inside the newsroom where everybody talks about, you know, what are our goals? How can we achieve them? How can we all come together in the stuff newsrooms around the country to contribute to that? So absolutely, I, I would be part of that. What about a local issue? Say um, right now, um, Wellington's planning for the future and they're talking about housing and high density housing or higher density housing. Uh, lobby that oppose that say, no, we have to protect the heritage character of our lower density housing. So, I mean, would you want to have the leeway within stuff to say to your bosses, I want to take a stance on this issue and campaign um, one way or the other? Yeah, but I wouldn't throw the Dominion Post weight behind an issue like that because that is clearly something that's about news coverage, about providing a full range of views through the traditional news coverage. So something like that, which is so important to the community and so divisive in Wellington, I think needs to be reported from a traditional, more balanced perspective. So that's not the kind of campaign I would uh, be wanting to run anyway. But uh, but the campaigns that I do want to run, you know, that would of course, yes, be uh, discussed within the newsroom and with Bernadette Courtney and Mark Stevens, the editorial director and, and editor in charge of newsrooms across the country. So it, it, it would very much be a collaborative process. Also, you mentioned the diversity uh, aspect, and that is uh, also addressed in this uh, Code of Practice and Ethics. It says, we, staff, acknowledge we have an obligation to educate ourselves to understand key sensitivities and the differences among ethnic and cultural groups we report on. Uh, We aim to represent Aotearoa New Zealand's diversity. Journalists and contributors should feel culturally safe to express their own beliefs uh, without pressure to conform to the dominant Western culture. Um, What does that statement mean to you in terms of your obligations as editor of the Dominion Post? To me, that means, and I wasn't involved in the creation of this document. You know, I I don't start the job until tomorrow. Uh, So I read it probably at the same time that you did. But to me, that means that, you know, New Zealand is a diverse place now and we should be making sure that our newsrooms reflect that uh, in, in all its forms. So... I think it it means not telling stories from the maybe traditional perspective of a middle-aged white man. Um, You know, not to say that that is something that has been done, uh, but maybe, yeah, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that was the standard in journalism. Uh, now things have been changing a lot, and I do hope that we can have younger voices. We will have Māori reporters, Pacifica reporters, all, uh, you know, different perspectives that come to the table to tell stories from those different perspectives. Yeah, but that um, that phrase there about journalists and contributors should feel culturally safe to express their own cultural beliefs and language, maybe that is that more of a, an internal thing, like within your newsrooms, um, they they shouldn't feel pressure to be, as it says here, conform to the dominant Western culture, or does that actually extend to variety and choice and approach of, of stuff that would actually be published in a title like the Dominion Post? I mean, I really want a free flow of ideas from all of the reporters, whether they're junior, whether they're senior, you know, what what have you. You know, I want everybody to feel free to talk up and to contribute to making what we do better. So, so for me, that means everybody has an opinion and should feel free to 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 say it. Yeah, and interestingly, another aspect: the the commitment to uh, trust the news 
and truth uh, extends to hoaxes. It says, including for April Fool's Day, we take the trust of our audience seriously and do not attempt to fool our audience, even for satirical purposes. So uh, no comedy fake news on April 1st, uh, 2021. No, that's right. I mean, that was funny kind of in the past when it was uh, very easy to, you know, spot the stories about, you know, spaghetti trees and things like that. But now in this fake news environment and with the charges being levelled at the media, yeah, I think that that, um, that time is over. OK. Well, um, do you have specific plans for the Dom Post? I mean, when you went for the job, you must have had a pitch. Um, what are the things uh, you want to change um, either in the in the medium or long term in the, at the paper? You know, I do have a lot of ideas about what I would like to see the Dominion Post become. But first of all, I'm really going to take time to get to know the newsroom uh, and the Wellington community. You know, I've been away from New Zealand for 20 years um, and I need to take some time to find out what readers want uh, from us, what the audience wants. Um, I'm not going to make any assumptions about that. So I will be embarking on a period where I'm welcoming, welcoming feedback from readers and potential readers about how we can provide better news for them. But one of the things I have been thinking a lot about is um, arts and culture coverage, because I think in Wellington, you know, Wellington's in a way a two-story kind of town, uh, and one of those is politics, of course, and we have a very strong political editor in Luke Malpass. So I feel like we're good on the politics side, but on the arts and culture, I think a lot of that coverage has kind of slipped away since the, the great days of Tom Cardi writing in the Evening Post that I remember from my university and, and early career. So I would like to uh, look for ways that we can increase arts and culture coverage in the Dominion Post and on staff online to kind of, yeah, better reflect all of what Wellington is. Well, one thing that might restrict you a little bit in whatever ambitions you have is that these days the production of stuff's papers is uh, where they used to be very distinct titles, the Press, Waikato Times, uh, Dominion Post, Southland Times. These days there's a lot more common content, including editorials that will appear sometimes in every single one of the the papers. Uh, Editorial cartoons, for example, too, that are common to the paper, they used to have their own. Is that something you would like to roll back if you can, or do we just have to accept now that there is going to be more common content between the papers and and less diversity between the titles? Yeah, I don't think it really needs to be rolled back in many ways. The the, uh, editorial is written by the Dominion staff uh, several times a week. There is that voice in there, there, and it's the opinions page, which is laid out centrally. But these are national issues, which usually, which uh, concern everybody uh, in the country. Um, But I do have you know, control over the news pages that will go into the Dominion Post. So I will be able to increase the local component and the local feel of the paper through those pages. So whether that's, you know, what I put on the front page of the Dominion Post each day or, you know, the way that stories are um, laid out within those first, you know, six, seven, eight pages of the paper, that is something that I will be looking at too. Well, in releasing this new code of practice and ethics, Mark Stevens uh, did take the opportunity to restate uh, what he said previously 
earlier this year, including on this program, that the the measurement of success now is not you know how many people are clicking on the story. It's not about the website traffic being greater than rivals in in similar areas of the media. Um, they're saying we've we've moved on from this as the guide, guiding metric. It's now all about trust. And I guess at the Washington Post it was a similar thing. But how do you meaningfully measure it? Reversing this decline of public trust that media monitors pick up. Yeah, I think we'll be able to tell by the support that people give to us. So whether that is uh, subscribing to the newspapers or becoming a supporter of stuff, uh, you know, by donating money to us, you know, just sending us the cost of a flat white, you know, once a week or once a month or something would make a big difference. And that would yeah, show that the audience understands that good journalism costs money and, you know, uh, kind of buying into that. And when we when we see something like The Guardian, how they have run a supporter donation program, they have had lots of people flocking to that because they support The Guardian's journalism, but also, I think, because they understand that they want this to be able to remain free and to share it with people who might not be able to afford it, that everybody has a right to good news. So, um, yeah, readers will tell us. I'm sure that I will. my inbox will be overflowing with feedback. I hope it is overflowing with feedback from readers to tell us how how we're doing. And I mean, clicks, as I said previously, I think clicks can be a metric there because I think that people will click on good journalism, that people want quality from us. They don't want the, um, you know, clickbait. And, there, are, you know, there's, I really invite uh, people who have maybe not looked at stuff for a while to go back and take another look and, and see the improvements that have been made this year in particular on that website. But if um, it is still... A competitive business, nzherald.co.nz, has trumpeted the fact that the last survey did show it was the most read uh, news site uh, in the last period of, of which it was surveyed. That that previously had been stuff. It's a marginal difference. But um, although you say uh, web traffic's not everything and you're not going to chase clicks, if that gap opened up, that would be something of concern to editors and, and your bosses, wouldn't it? Yes, clicks are important, but we're not going to get clicks for clicks sake you know it has to be based on really good journalism you know um but but regardless that's a blip and stuff will absolutely be coming back um i look forward to to returning to to number one and the and those um numbers just finally and i i'm gonna i'm guessing that like a lot of journalists you would have tuned into the tv debate between Trump and Biden uh, that uh, got so much media attention. I note the Washington Post uh, was one of those describing it in an editorial as a disgrace, but also saying, look, that debate had value because it confirmed to people watching that um, President Trump didn't appear to have much of a plan or vision uh, for the next four years. So if anyone was doubtful about that, there would have been evidence about that. Some people now saying, look, there's no point in having two more debates if they're going to be like that one. Do you have a view on that? Would it be a shame in your eyes if there weren't two more debates that better run than the one we saw on Wednesday? Yeah, I don't think I have any special view on that, just beyond being an ordinary, you know, human out in the world, being completely alarmed at the, you know, that this is what the United States has descended into. Uh, you know, this kind of stuff is is why I've chosen to come back to New Zealand, not to the United States, that it's become so toxic and so polarised there. And, you know, even though my son was born in Washington, D.C., I really thought, you know, I want to raise him as a New Zealander with New Zealand values, and I didn't want us to go back 
back into that environment. I think that's really emblematic of um, what is now is happening in the United States and the way that, yeah, society is really divided uh, and the way that these divisions have been laid bare by the by President Trump's style of leadership. So um, no great insights, just to say I was horrified by, by what I saw. That was Anna Fifield, the new editor of the Dominion Post in Wellington, who takes up the job this week after finishing up at the Washington Post, where she was its bureau chief in Beijing. And that new editorial code of practice and ethics at Stuff, which was launched last Monday on World News Day, can be found on the stuff.co.nz website. Just look for the link marked Editorial Code at the bottom of the homepage. Anna Fifield's former paper, The Washington Post, was pretty forthright this week about that first TV debate between President Trump and his Democratic challenger Joe Biden, which was held last Wednesday in Cleveland. It was a disgrace, said The Washington Post, but not without value, because, the paper said, it confirmed for the nation that Mr Trump has no positive case for re-election, let alone a vision of where to take the country in the next four years. Though the paper's headline blamed both candidates for the failure of the debate. Hayden Donnell took a look at that in midway Media Watch last Wednesday night on The Lately Show with Karen Hay in something of a debate special in which he also looked at the News Hub leaders' debate between Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins the same night and also the Māori electorate debates broadcast by Three's Māori Affairs show, The Hui. It's getting hotter than Atoko Maru uh, Bay shearing shed. It's getting rowdier than Russell in the 1800s. It's getting louder than Haruru Falls. More William twists Jones, and turns than the Mangamuka Gorge. So stay with us. Ka hoki mai te hui all that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app, or you'll find it on our podcast feed if you missed it. But also watching that debate in Cleveland last Wednesday closely was the BBC's New York correspondent, Nick Bryant. The next day on the BBC's website, he called it the night that American democracy hit rock bottom. He described the whole thing as a real-time rendering of US decline. And in fact, he's just written an entire book about that, When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. But with the election looming, just a month away now, he also told me the media must make themselves great again after falling down on the job during the Trump presidency. I think after this week's televised debate, where many people wanted to turn off within the first 10 minutes, I dare say there are a lot of Americans out there who want this election over as quickly as possible. I don't think, though, that one of them is Donald Trump, because at the moment, if the election were held tomorrow... It looks very likely like Joe Biden would not just win the national poll, as Hillary Clinton did last time with three million votes. He'd win the Electoral College as well. He is dominant in the national polls. He looks strong in the key battleground states that he needs to win as well. States like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states that unexpectedly went for Donald Trump four years ago. So although there is a lot of fatigue, although there is a lot of people who wish this strange campaign would come to a speedy end, I don't think you get that sense from the Donald Trump White House. They know they need to have some sort of transformative event. I don't think it happened in the first televised debate. And it was a pretty sorry spectacle last night. 90 minutes of sort of barbs and insults um, that I think most people would rather forget. Well, Nick, as we said, this is uh, contemporary history, but it's a it's a personal one, and your stories are part of it. You also reflect on your own profession. You say journalists are far from 
blameless. You say we yearn for presidents and presidential candidates with maximum journalistic entertainment value. We hate the idea of a presidency on in the background. A lot of campaign reporters like me write the sort of narrative of the campaign that ideally we want to cover. The narrative that provides us with maximum journalistic entertainment value. Let me give you an example. The year 2000, Al Gore got a terrible press, partly because nobody wanted to cover a third term of a Clinton administration, which is essentially what Al Gore would have been without the most charismatic protagonist, Bill Clinton, in the, in the White House. The much better story was a Bush restoration, a son following his father into the presidency. In 2008, I think that we decided as a journalistic community that Barack Obama, the first African-American president, would be a better story than Hillary Clinton as the first female president. And I think in the primary campaign, when they fought each other, you know, Barack Obama did end up getting a much better press. And I think in 2016 as well, you know, along came Donald Trump at a time when the media industry was really on its knees. I mean, a lot of the landscape that uh, was a seedbed for his candidacy was the kind of post-industrial landscape where the empty factories became echo chambers for Make America Great Again. But another desolate landscape was the media landscape. And along comes the ultimate clickbait candidate, the guy that delivers ratings, the guy that everybody wants to watch on TV, the guy that gets people onto cable news. And I think, you know, that was a classic case of better story bias you know, um, you know, Donald Trump's presidency would be a far more journalistic entertainment value and his campaign was far more interesting for journalists than that of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, well, expanding on that, you actually use the phrase um, beltway myopia uh, and neglect of the heartland, uh, which blinded us journalists to the reasons for Trump's rise. Um, a little later, you speak of... Um, the fact we spend so much of our professional lives on Twitter rather than speaking to people, um, our self-absorption um, fueled by all this. People were saying this after Trump got elected four years ago, right, that suddenly it was a shock that made people realise these things you said were true. Um, have they been addressed over the last four years? Look, I think it's interesting how 2016 has impacted the press in America covering this campaign. Um, I think so many people were convinced that Donald Trump couldn't win in 2016, that this time round, they're almost convinced that he can't lose. I mean, what a lot of the book is about is, is how we kind of miss the trend lines, how we saw Donald Trump as this historical accident when so many things that were happening in America actually converged and culminated in his candidacy. You know, you look at the economy. When Donald Trump says the American dream is dead, millions of Americans agree with him. This belief that your kids are going to lead a more abundant life than you did so many Americans stopped believing that. Politically, the Republican Party had become an anti-Obama party. So it made perfect sense for them to go for the most virulently anti-Obama candidate. After eight years of an African-American president, you'd hope that the racial breach in America would have been repaired. But it wasn't. Technology had changed. It had placed in the hands of Donald Trump Twitter and Facebook these powerful political weapons. It had placed in the hands of foreign adversaries like Russia these powerful political weapons. It had normalized narcissism. Uh, and it had a big cultural effect. And what were we watching on TV at the time? We were watching Donald Trump on The Celebrity Apprentice. Barack Obama modernized the celebrity presidency that had been created by um, Ronald Reagan. And Donald Trump, again, was the beneficiary of that. You make the point that 
this goes back to uh, long before digital times, um, the fairness doctrine um, that mandated broadcasters to air honest, equitable and balanced programming that went west a long time ago. During Reagan times, in fact, a lot of this um, uh, partisan media launched and really took off. Um, and also you, what you talked about was back in the 1980s, the privatization of American life, home computers, game consoles, kept people indoors. You know, so this this goes a long time before Facebook and the Internet, doesn't it? Yeah, the fairness doctrine and its repeal is really crucial. As you say, the idea was that you would have balanced opinions on the uh, local and national airwaves. And, and Ronald Reagan got rid of that. The irony is that many in the Reagan White House thought this would be a field day for liberal broadcasters to attack the White House. But quite the opposite thing happened. It became this massive boon for right wing talk show hosts. And what you also saw was the fragmentation of the media. In the old days, a relatively small amount of media organisations and a relatively few number of TV networks sort of curated public reality. And they were centrist and fair-minded in approach. And, and what you realise over time is that somebody like CNN, who's, got, who's always had a more sort of traditional, impartial BBC sort of approach to the news, they realise that nobody actually wants to watch that anymore. So they start becoming far more opinionated. Their anchors start delivering these polemics at the beginning of their shows. And all the time, opinion in America is becoming more polarised. And then, of course, obviously, we have the massive impact of the internet, which many people thought at the time would be the thing that brought the country together in these sort of civic online spaces. People would get on, they discuss things in a really rational and informed and civil way. And of course, the opposite happened. The internet became this huge accelerant of polarisation. Nick Bryant, the BBC's correspondent in New York and the author of a new book, When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. And that was part of a longer interview for Sunday morning here on RNZ National about other aspects covered in the book. That's available on the Sunday morning page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app, or you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again at the same time next weekend for more Media Watch here on RNZ National.